Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Amid big questions over Donald Trump's ballot eligibility, is there really any question that he engaged in an insurrection? And if the courts don't hold him accountable in 2024, will voters hold him accountable at the ballot box? We're going to talk about all of that with former Obama campaign manager Jim Messina and former RNC spokesperson Tim Miller. Plus, our friend Andrew Weissman joins me to dig into what the former president could do with the Justice Department if he wins back the White House. Also today, a one-on-one conversation with the U.S. Surgeon General. Dr. Vivek Morthy is here to discuss loneliness, social media, and mental health around the holidays. And later, the exit interview. Congresswoman Anna Eshoo is leaving Congress after more than three decades. I'll ask her what she learned and what concerns her most about what comes next. So it's the holiday season, the time for reflection, the chance to take stock of the year that is coming to a close, and to really put this moment into perspective. And one of the things I'm thinking about right now, roughly 10 months out from what might be the most consequential election of our lifetime, is how every poll, and even every election, is really a reflection of a moment in time. Let me explain what I mean by that. If voters were to head to the polls tomorrow to vote in the 2024 general election, then the issues that would be front and center would be things like the lack of enthusiasm among young voters for President Biden and fears among Democrats that people won't show up at the polls, the domestic impact of the war raging between Israel and Hamas, the threat of a second Trump term to abortion rights, to democracy, to the rule of law, the fact that most Americans feel the economy is getting worse even as it's actually getting better and despite what the data tells them, or the Teflon-like nature of Donald Trump who is yet to be really scarred by any of the criminal cases against him. Like this week in Colorado, when the state Supreme Court threw Trump's ballot eligibility into question, raising big constitutional questions that have never been asked or answered before. And yet his allies and rivals alike still largely rushed to his defense. But voters will, of course, not head to the polls tomorrow. It is Christmas. They will in 10 months. And 10 months is a long time from now. Remember, Back in the 2008 election, the Iraq war and national security dominated the headlines for months. Then the stock market crashed and the economy was far and away the most driving issue that fall. I mean, exit polls show that it dominated voters' concerns at historic levels. And let me tell you, I was working on the Obama campaign for that whole time. That the prediction, that would never would have been the prediction 10 months in advance. Or how about in 2020, when COVID-19 completely upended the presidential election? Ten months out, there had yet to be a single diagnosed case in the United States. So previous elections have certainly taught us there can be issues that were not at all on the radar that became dominant on Election Day, issues that bubble up late and change the course of history. So as we have a brief pause now for the holidays, it is worth taking a moment to consider what issues are people not talking about or that haven't even happened yet that could weigh on the electorate as we look ahead to the next 10 months. 
Joining me now are the perfect people to answer that exact question. Jim Messina was the campaign manager for Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign, and Tim Miller is the writer at large for The Bulwark and former communications director for Jeb Bush's 2016 campaign. So, Jim, I, I mean, I brought you both down like memory lane there a little bit, but you both have done a lot of presidential elections and campaigns. I want to start with you. I mean, Obama's—you uh, were, of course, the manager of Obama's re-election campaign. What is— on your mind right now, what is on the minds of Democrats, of your mind right now, that Democrats are not talking about that they should be? Let me start there. Yeah, thanks, Jen. This is like a very nice uh, psychological session for me to talk about all the things that Democrats are losing <laughs> so I'm here their minds about. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they shouldn't be. But there are things that really concern me. And the biggest one is this possibility of a third party. Um, mm -hmm. These third party ballots, you know, Jen, you know, these numbers, we win Arizona by 11,000 votes, we win Georgia by 10,000 votes, you know, the Midwest states were super close, we just cannot peel off voters uh, in these numbers. And some of the numbers are really scary. And I think people yeah. flirting with third party um, ballots don't understand they're playing exactly into Donald Trump's hands here. And so this, that's one of the things that keeps me up at night. You know, it doesn't keep me up at night, Jen, the polls, you know, you would, if you were my mom or my mother-in-law and calling me every day about the polls, you know, everyone just needs to take a deep breath and realize Joe Biden has led or been tied in 15 recent national polls, including leading in 10 of them. So you and I are the biggest believers that polling this far out does not matter at all. So mm. let's worry about things we can actually control, like third-party ballot access. Yeah, that's a good one. And predictions are so addictive, but it's all about a moment in time. So, Tim, let me turn those same questions to you. What should people be talking about more that they aren't, and what should they be freaking out about less? Yeah, well, uh, I hope we're not having a stock market crash or a pandemic coming down, uh, down I the pike here. I went Jen. a little dark uh, that kind there, of me but out. <laughs> it's important to remember. Think about the bad things that could happen. Freaked me out a little bit there. Um, you know, look, you, you mentioned this on the young voters. I think that this is overbaked right now in particular. I think there's plenty to worry about, uh, particularly if you care deeply about the region. There's a lot of tragedy happening in, in Israel and in Gaza right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, the idea that this is going to be the top of mind issue next November, uh, I think is really quite unlikely. And I think that a lot of these young voters have not even really engaged about what Donald Trump's policies would look like there. I, I think in this place, I, I agree with Jim, like a third party candidate running on some anti-war platform is to, to, that directly appeals to young voters is more concerning than if there's a two-way. Um, you know, I, I guess I'll put my hat on of a former Republican as the group that people aren't thinking a lot about. I think there's a lot of conversation right now about what whether Nikki Haley can make a surge in New Hampshire and whether a Republican primary could be upended. Like that's not going to happen. I, like this, the Republican primary is over. But I do think one thing that people aren't talking about is. I don't think there's any reason to hope that Nikki Haley's going to do the right thing and, and oppose Donald Trump next year. But some of the people that vote for in this primary very well might. And what could Democrats do? What could the Biden campaign do to try to peel off maybe 20 percent of the people that pull a ballot for Nikki Haley in the next few mm -hmm. months? Those are gettable voters. And, and I think that a lot of folks aren't kind of thinking about that, you know, because they're, they're thinking about them in the context of the Republican primary right now. So maybe the Haley vote. OK, so let me take what Tim just said there. And for you, Messina, you're obviously a big advocate for President Biden being reelected in the campaign. But what is the one thing? This is all this is all a game or a therapy, not a game, but a form of therapy for you who's done so much politics. What do you wish they were doing 
in January to start off the year doing? Is it going after that Haley vote? Is it something else? It's going straight at Donald Trump and driving the the change, uh, driving the message, driving the, the contrast between the candidates. Jen, you and I went through this in 2012. In 2011, Barack Obama had to talk about his record and kind of say, this is what I have done. That's exactly what Joe Biden is doing. But we were behind in the polls the whole time until we drove a contrast with Mitt Romney. And the moment we drove that contrast, we started moving in the polls. And so mm-hmm. my... Um, my beginning of the year wish is just a straight contrast between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, because Tim's really right about one thing. Donald Trump is going to be the nominee and voters have not figured that out yet. Voters still think, oh, we want different candidates. We are where we are and we're going to have a straight Biden versus Trump ballot choice. And the more the Biden campaign can drive that, the better their poll numbers will be. So, so, Tim, you and I have talked before on this show, on your podcast, about your frustration that Democrats don't seem to sing off of the same song sheet. Messina and I can tell you that it's a big umbrella party, so that's not always how it works. But is that the thing you wish Democrats were doing more? And if so, what, what do you think, as somebody who's worked in Republican politics for so long, is the effective message you'd like to hear them to kind of win over some of those swing voters or moderate Republicans who aren't going to support Trump? Yeah, I, I won't belabor this. I would like to see somebody out there being the hammer. Maybe Messina can do it. I, you know, I think Joe Biden could use a hammer driving this contrast right now. That's just not his nature. That's good. That's why we like Joe Biden, right? That's why he was elected because he was, you know, going to unite the country. I, he could use somebody out there driving this contrast for him. That's one thing I'd like to see from the Democrats uh, next year. And, and, you know, I, I discussed the Haley vote. I think this is one. How can we bring some of these new ex-Republicans off the sideline? I'm kind of burned here. But, you know, can we win over Mike Pence maybe to not vote for uh, to not vote for Trump or Chris Christie or, you know, who could be recruited to be a surrogate from that world? I also think reaching out to the blue collar Obama Trump voters. This gets lost a lot of times in the discussion, mm-hmm. but I think you could peel some of those folks back on the abortion issue. Whenever Democrats talk about abortion, it's always about turning out suburban women and young voters. That's true. It could also work with some of these non-college men that aren't ready to be dads yet. And I, I think that like really trying to drive that message and, and, and tamp Trump's margin down there is another thing I'd like to see from Democrats next year. So just to peel off of that, Messina, I mean, there's sort of this debate, although maybe there will be many issues, and again, we're far away, as to what will be the biggest driver to help President Biden. Do you still think it is abortion and abortion rights? Is it democracy? Is it a combination? Is it something else? I think it's abortion and and the voters that Tim was just talking about. I'm obsessed with these Obama Trump voters. And when you look at how to peel them off, especially in the three Midwestern states, it really is abortion. It really is, you know, for the first time in modern memory, the Republican Party is taking away a fundamental right from voters and the palpable anger about that. And I think, you know, people like Gretchen Whitmer have had amazing messages about this, Mm. tying the economy to this issue as well. It's not just about abortion. It is an economic choice. And I think driving that in the Midwest would be the one thing that, you know, we have got to do. Because I think if you look at both women swing voters and these younger men who are are ticket splitting, they both are movable on this issue. So, Tim, uh, I mean, that's an interesting. And Gretchen Weber also talks about in a personal level, which I think is such a good lesson in the Kate Cox story, of course. 
So, Tim, we, we just saw this ruling in Colorado this week disqualifying Trump from the ballot in the state. There's going to be, of course, a lot of focus on what the courts will do. But just on the politics, you're not a lawyer that I'm tracking. But how do you yes. think this affects Trump in the long run? I mean, they're already trying to whip this up. What do you think the best counterargument is for the Biden campaign to their efforts to kind of whip this up on the Trump side? Yeah. Look, there's always this everything helps Trump narrative sometimes in the punditocracy, which drives me crazy. I, yeah. I think in the short term, it clearly does help him in the primary, you know, because there's this kind of rally around the flat rally around the orange man defense that happens among the Republican base. But I, the primary is already over in my in my estimation. So I don't I don't know if that matters that much. What about these swing groups that we've been talking about? How can how can Democrats, you know, how can never Trumpers, how can we reach these voters and make the case to them that, okay, whatever you think about a ruling in some Colorado Supreme Court, do we really want a man to be president that's been indicted in four different jurisdictions that might be disqualified because he attempted an insurrection? I mean, we talk about January 6th. We talk about this stuff every day here. A lot of these swing voters haven't been thinking about January 6th that much since mm. January 6th. So I think that re that trying to peel off some an additional percentage, a lot of these folks have already moved, but additional percentage of the college-educated swing vote, former Republican vote, by talking about this issue is, is meaningful. Jim Messina, Tim Miller, you've given us a lot to think about, to mull over through the holiday season, maybe some uh, direction for next year as well. Thank you both so much for joining me this afternoon. And coming up next, new concerns about Trump's plan if he takes back the White House. Andrew Weissman joins me to talk about what he could do with the Justice Department specifically, Trump that is. We're back after a quick break. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app here on MSNBC. We are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. By now, you're probably pretty familiar with the numerous criminal cases facing Donald Trump, and we're going to continue following all of them. But what's also important to follow is what Donald Trump plans to do if he takes back the White House. Trump has vowed to use the Justice Department to, quote, go after Joe Biden and basically anyone else he perceives as a political enemy. And it's not just rhetoric. There are plans being made right now to carry out Trump's wishes. Project 2025 is a group of right-wing think tanks that have gathered together to draft executive orders that Trump would sign immediately upon taking office, among them invoking the Insurrection Act, which would authorize him to deploy the military to essentially serve as law enforcement and put down any protests against him. It's pretty chilling stuff. 
when you consider a Trump DOJ would essentially be used to enforce the dictatorial rhetoric we're hearing from him more and more on the campaign trail. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman. He's the former general counsel at the FBI and a special and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. You are also special. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, you know, I think it's so important for people to understand how this would actually work, because you hear so much rhetoric. But you worked in the Department of Justice. You're very familiar with what can happen there. So when we envision Trump being back in the White House, which I know is hard to put our minds there, but for a moment, how exactly could he direct the DOJ to go after people he perceives to be his enemies? This is such an important topic um, for people to really focus on what is going to happen, not what could happen, but really what is going to happen. And the way I look at it is let's look at what he did when he was the president. So first, if you're thinking that there are going to be investigations into corruption within his administration, that's a non-starter. Why? Because he's not going to be appointing anyone like special counsel Mueller. He's not going to have investigations uh, into his own administration. And as we know from what he did when he was president, he is not going to cooperate with any congressional investigation. Mm -hmm. He's just going to strong arm those and not comply with subpoenas. So that's one, one thing sort of off the table. Then there's the question of how he's going to weaponize DOJ to go after enemies. And I think a really good thing to look at, if you want to see a data point for what he's going to do, look at John Durham. John Durham mm -hmm. brought two separate criminal cases where he managed to get 24 jurors to unanimously agree that he did not prove his case. There wasn't a single holdout. But what did that mean? Those people were subjected to that criminal prosecution um, and had to go through the investigation and, and all of that hardship to vindicate their names. That can happen over and over again. If you think John Durham was a real injustice, that is really the tip of the iceberg of what we can expect under a new Department of Justice headed up by Donald Trump and an attorney general reporting to him. No, I mean, you mentioned an attorney general. Typically, as I think most people know, an attorney general will be nominated, would have to be confirmed by the Senate. But one of the things that Liz Cheney talks about in her book and has talked about since is this possibility or plan that he could nominate people he knows aren't going to be confirmed and then appoint them as acting, which means they can't serve as long. But what would that potentially mean? You have an acting attorney general who's a political appointee of Trump's. What, what could they do? So um, it's important to remember, we don't know what the Senate will look like either. And so there could actually be people like Jeff Clark or Sidney Powell or Rudy Giuliani who are confirmed. But if you have somebody who is there as an acting one, they're also more beholden to the president, as that's why I think you saw so many acting positions under uh, Donald Trump when he was president. Mm -hmm. um, and they can do exactly what a official, not you know, confirmed person can do. There's no difference in terms of their powers, um, but it does allow essentially a circumvention of the Senate confirmation process for a time period. But you can just keep cycling through these, these people. Um, also, remember yeah. that Donald Trump has talked about getting rid of, of the civil service so that the so-called deep state, his view is that those people who are adhering to their oaths of office um, can, can simply be eradicated. 
Yeah, I, I never thought, I mean, this is a very obvious, but I never thought about how he can just cycle people through, even if their time limit of serving as an acting runs up. So the other piece, and I know you've talked about this, I've talked about this, is pardon power, because there is certain historic traditions, but there are not legal limitations that people might think there are in the law. How concerned are you about Trump using pardon power to kind of reward people who might help him, might break the law to help him? Um, there aren't the checks in the system needed as we think about it? Well, the pardon power is one where you really see a flaw in the way that the Constitution um, was written, because I think they didn't um, imagine an executive who would use that power to essentially encourage crimes and say, if you do this crime for me, I will then pardon you. It is, it is really the monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card um, and Trump has talked about using that, um, and he is already at the end of his administration given pardons that you know make these what happened under the Bill Clinton um, mm. at the end of his administration pale in comparison because of the close connections in terms of um, his own criminal liability. That is Donald Trump's own criminal liability, and using it to thwart people who might cooperate and give up information about him. We didn't mean to scare people on Christmas Eve, but we do think it's so important for people to understand all of these pieces. Thank you for all of the hours you spent this year answering all of our questions on this show and so many other shows. We hope Innes has a nice holiday as well. Uh, something tells me we're going to have a lot more to talk about in 2024. Thank you again, Andrew. And Congresswoman Anna Eshoo's exit interview is coming up next. I'll ask her about her career, her regrets, and a certain former speaker who's one of her closest friends. We're back after a quick break. Nineteen ninety two will forever be known as the year of the woman. A record number of women won seats in both the House and the Senate. Here's what The Washington Post wrote right after that election. They took their inspiration from Anita Hill, saw their opportunity in an electorate hungry for change and cast themselves as outsiders in a year when outsiders could be fashionable. And it worked. Fast forward to today, and nearly 30 percent of Congress is made of, of women, which is the highest percentage in U.S. history. But a number of the women who are currently serving in Congress have announced that they're retiring in the coming year, including Congresswoman Anna Eshoo of California. She's been in Congress since the year of the woman, and during her more than three decades in Washington, she's introduced more than 60 bills that have become law. Joining me now for her exit interview is Congresswoman Anna Eshoo of California. Congresswoman, it's great to be talking with you, and congratulations it's on your incredible you, career Jen. to date. Thank so you. I, I want to just you. have a moment of, of light because it's so dark in our politics right now. You have shattered so many glass ceilings yourself. There are now, as I mentioned, more women in Congress than ever before. That's a good thing. Are there other things in Congress that have changed for the better since you've been in Washington? Well, I think that with a small d, it's far more democratic. Uh, when I uh, entered the Congress, um, it was, um, you know, you you knew that you were to be rather quiet and um, pay attention to the elders. Uh, there were a lot more strictures, I think, to the caucus. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more freewheeling now on the Democratic side. Uh, uh, a lot more opportunity, a lot more minorities and women in the caucus. So uh, it's changed, and I think it's changed for the better.
That's a, a good note of light in a dark time. So California's a 16. Yeah, it is. We have to have those two, right? So California's we 16th do. district, which you represent, is the birthplace, of course, of Silicon Valley. But you have yes. not been afraid to push for accountability for big tech, which I think is really impressive given where you represent. You recently told The Washington Post that Congress didn't see the perils of the Internet 30 years ago and, quote, how especially social media would be used for misinformation, disinformation, mm-hmm. what young children children are exposed to. What do you wish could be done either to put the toothpaste back in the tube, which maybe isn't possible, but when it comes to big tech and the impact it's had on the country and the world, really? Well, I think uh, we made a mistake uh, many, many years ago. I understand what we were thinking and why we did what we did at the time, uh, because the Internet was uh, really nascent then. And so we uh, granted uh, the companies in uh, what's known as Section 230 of the Telecommunications mm-hmm. Act um, uh, that they were uh, uh, they would not be liable for anything. And uh, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. And uh, as you said, it's very difficult. Uh, well, you can't get the genie back in the bottle. Mm. And it's a uh, it's a struggle uh, to change uh, uh, that now. But there really needs to be accountability. Uh, you know, and we've seen that with uh, many American industries. American automobile industry is an industry that we're all so proud of. Uh, but there's had to be accountability in terms of safety measures and, and, and others with them. Uh, that needs to be brought to the technology industry. And I don't think that it's going to slow them down in terms of their innovation. I, I really don't. I, I think that they're here to stay. And, uh, and I'm proud of, uh, you know, the, all the positives, uh, that the industry has brought about, but there are areas uh, that are harmful, they should be, and they can be addressed. I think a lot of people would agree with you on both sides of the aisle, which is sort of an interesting development over the last couple of years. The Washington mm-hmm. Post also asked you recently what your biggest tech regret is, and you had a really interesting answer. You talked about the failure to strike an agreement on comprehensive immigration reform. Why is why is that something? I mean, I think that's something that's on the minds of so many people in this country, so many people in the Democratic Party, but more broadly. Why why was that your answer to that question? Well, first of all, we would not be the nation that we are without being an immigrant nation. And uh, immigrants uh, play a very important role uh, in uh, the technology industry. Uh, so many come to the United States to be educated here. We have uh, the finest colleges and universities, certainly Stanford University, which is uh, the geographic center of my district. Uh, mm-hmm. But once they're educated, if they cannot get a green card, they have to leave. And so immigration is uh, really uh, a part of the uh, the threshold, the entrance to uh, the industry. The industry depends on uh, on uh, on immigration as well. So uh, that I, I think they were surprised when they interviewed me, and that that was my answer. Yeah, uh, but, I was uh, too. Mm-hmm. I was, too. I thought it was such an interesting answer. It was very thought-provoking. So before I let you go, I did want to ask you, Nancy Pelosi is one of your closest friends in Congress. Um, We've had the pleasure of having her on the show a couple times. What's the one thing that people do not know about her? Oh, how very sweet she is. 
How very <laughs> sweet. And that she has the best giggle in the world. A great oh, that's sense a good- of humor. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a good one. Very sweet and a giggle. Seeing how tough she is, mm-hmm. I think that would warm warm people's hearts. Congresswoman Anna yes. Eshoo, thank you for your service. Thank you for breaking all the barriers you did. It was a real pleasure talking with you this afternoon. Thank you, Jen, very much. And to you as well. We're very proud of you. Thank you. Coming up next, the loneliness epidemic. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy will be here to talk about the importance of human connection. And later, you may know him from Queer Eye or from his furniture line. My one-on-one conversation with Bobby Burke is coming up. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow later this hour. We'll be right back. When we think of the holiday season, we think of time with family. We think of themes like joy, gratitude, and reflection. But for so many Americans, this time of year can also trigger feelings of depression, sadness, or grief. It can ultimately be a very lonely time. In fact, in a recent survey, 61% of respondents said they expected to experience feelings of loneliness or sadness this holiday season. These feelings are generally a hard thing for a lot of people to open up about and talk about. But this year, we've seen a shift in the conversation around loneliness. More prominent voices are speaking out about the so-called epidemic of loneliness we're seeing across the country. One of them is U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Morthy, who has spent much of the year sounding the alarm on this exact issue. In his advisory this year, he deemed it an urgent public health issue that can increase the risk of premature death. And he laid out a national strategy to tackle it. Joining me now to talk more about this is the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. My friend, it's very good to see you here. And I, I would just say that when I first read this op-ed, and many people on my team, friends and family, I wanted to talk to you so much about this. It really sparked something in so many people. And I just reread it, and I wanted to point out a part of it that really stuck out to me. You said, quote, I had largely neglected my friendships during my tenure, convincing myself, this was your term during the Obama administration, convincing myself that I had to focus on work and I couldn't do both. After my job ended, I felt ashamed to reach out to friends I had ignored. I found myself increasingly lonely and isolated, and it felt as if I was the only one who felt that way. Loneliness, like depression, can, of course, um, with with, with which it can be associated, can chip away at your self-esteem and erode your sense of who you are. That's what happened to me. Um, I will send around the op-ed so people can see it on on social channels. But that struck me so much because I think so many people relate to that. I certainly did and don't talk about it. Uh, You wrote that back in the spring. How how has that changed you? 
Well, Jen, I'm so glad we're talking about this because I think the experience of loneliness is an incredibly common one. Mm -hmm. So many people of all ages experience loneliness, but we don't talk about it because we feel a sense of shame. Somehow we feel if we're lonely, that means that we're not likable, we're not lovable, something's wrong with us inside. That's how I felt as a kid when I first struggled with loneliness years ago. And I never told my parents, even though I knew they loved me uh, dearly, uh, but I experienced it as an adult too. What talking about this openly has allowed me to do, uh, what digging into it and understanding the issue uh, from a scientific perspective has helped me understand, is that a lot of us feel this way. One in two adults in America struggle with loneliness, and the numbers are actually even higher among young people. But I've also realized that to really address it, we have to make building social connection a priority in our lives and in society more broadly. Right now we live work-centered lives. Mm -hmm. I think what we've got to do is shift toward people-centered lives to be healthy, happy, and fulfilled. I feel like you're giving a lot of people Mm -hmm. something to strive for in the new year. And the holidays can be especially an isolating time. And I think Mm -hmm. this pressure not to talk about loneliness is really reflected for so many people during the holiday season. You launched the 5 for 5 Connection Challenge, which basically calls on Americans to take five actions to build more connections in their lives. Mm -hmm. It feels so simple, which is why it stuck out to me. Tell us a little bit about kind of what's a simple step. People watching right now who are one of the great percentage of people feeling lonely, they're worried about the holiday season. What could they do? And this is the good news. Simple steps can make a big difference in how connected we feel. So here are some things you could consider doing after the holidays and building into your life uh, in the new year. So number one is just to recognize if you are feeling lonely and isolated, I want you to know you're not the only one. Mm -hmm. There are many people who are struggling with this. The second thing is to recognize that just spending 15 minutes a day reaching out to people we care about, it could be sending a message to an old friend, it could be calling your mother or your your sibling, Uh, these can make a huge difference in how connected you feel over time. But the third thing is also to realize that when we help other people, it turns out that helps us feel more connected. Service is an antidote to loneliness. And service could be helping a coworker who's struggling uh, on a rough day. It could be checking in on a friend who just lost uh, their their loved one. Uh, it could be checking on a neighbor who you know is struggling by themselves. These small things can make a big difference. And if we build them into our day-to-day lives, they can help us rebuild the social fabric of our lives. And what about there are moments in between mm-hmm. those 15 minutes? Even if yeah. you do the 15 minutes twice a day, what are the things you would encourage people from your own life or just kind of your experience as a doctor that you would encourage people to do? Well, this is something actually I recently encouraged college students to do on a national college campus tour uh, that I did. And it was an eye-opening tour, by the way. You know, they were one of the universities I, I went to, a large, large university uh, with tens of thousands of students, said that they surveyed their students before we came and that 80% of them said that they were in need of more social connection in their life. Uh, another university said that more than 90% of the students who were going to their mental health clinics were saying that loneliness and isolation were key reasons why they were coming in. So one of the things we asked people to do uh, was our five for five challenge. And this was a very simple thing where we said, uh, for the next five days, we want you to take one active connection a day. Mm-hmm. And that could be expressing gratitude to someone, could be extending support to someone, or could be asking for help yourself. Mm-hmm. And these, this can just take 30 seconds to 60 seconds to do. In fact, we do it in the room with students right there. But it can be a powerful way in between our day to feel connected. Uh, this morning, for example, I got up uh, and I had a few minutes, uh, you know, before my, my kids woke up and I just sat there for a couple of minutes and I, I thought about 
some people in my life that I was grateful for. And it was just a reminder to me that sometimes we are more connected than we think. And those moments of gratitude can remind us that there are people who love us in our life, that we are deserving of that love, and that can help us feel less lonely. It's such an important reminder that it doesn't have to be hours of a day, that it can be something that can change the course of how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. So the flip side of this is sort of what people should avoid. Mm -hmm. And uh, you you and I, when we were serving together, you uh, put out a report on the threats of social media. Mm -hmm. Um, So that might be the answer. But what should people avoid if they are feeling lonely in this holiday season, they're worried about anxiety, about grief kind of taking over for them? Yeah, so, and, and I sympathize, sympathize with this. I, just the other day, actually got a call from a dear friend uh, who was uh, my best friend in middle school, mm-hmm. whose mother suddenly passed away. And she's deeply worried that she's going to feel especially isolated and alone over the holidays. And so I know that this is a worry for many people. But here's what I would encourage you to think if those feelings of loneliness creep in. I would just encourage you to remember that you, when you feel lonely, sometimes you almost feel like withdrawing further from people mm-hmm. to resist that instinct And just remember, in that moment, asking for help from a friend, from a family member, is okay to do. And in fact, when we reach out to other people, we don't just tell them we need help, but we often may open the door for conversation that they may need as well, Mm -hmm. uh, recognizing that so many of our friends are also struggling with a sense of loneliness and isolation. And lastly, I just want people to know that prioritizing your relationships in this way, uh, making time for people each and every day, that's not just a nice to have, it's necessary for your health and well-being. We have found in the recent advisory I issued on loneliness that when people struggle with this feeling of being lonely and disconnected, Mm -hmm. that over time it takes a toll on their health, raising their risk of depression and anxiety, but also raising their risk of heart disease and premature death and dementia. So it is important for all of us to stay connected to one another. And it's not a luxury. It's something we should be investing our time in. And it's something that we should also be building our schools and workplaces around because as a societal level, when we lack connection with one another, kids don't learn as well. People don't perform as well in the workplace. Folks are more prone to polarization and division in society. So our connections matter as individuals and a society. Such an important thing to remember. Also, you're a parent, I'm a parent. It's such an important thing to remember in terms of how we're guiding and teaching our children. So thank you for joining me. And we're going to share your op-ed and all of these incredible um, pieces of guidance you're offering out there. I uh, so appreciate that, Jen. Last thing, maybe share one quick thing, uh, is which is when it comes to technology, this is a double-edged sword for us sometimes. And I, I would just encourage people to also recognize that time on social media doesn't always mean that we're fostering greater connection mm-hmm. uh, to others. In fact, often uh, our time on social media can substitute uh, for what should be in-person time. It can dilute the quality of our connections with one another. So if you can opt to take a few minutes away from technology and instead spend that in person with someone or pick up the phone and call a friend to check on them, just five minutes of that each day will make a big difference in how you feel. Such an important note to end on. Uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, thank you so much. And we'll be right back. You may know him from the show Queer Eye. Bobby Burke was one of the fab five that helped change the lives of people all across the country. And in November, he announced he'd be leaving the show after the upcoming eighth season. Bobby also has a new book out, one that explores home design, organization, and even mental health. I had the opportunity to sit down with him recently to talk about the new book, his upbringing, and why he sees our homes as such an important part of how we live. So you have this amazing book. I've read through the entire thing, right at home by Bobby Burke. And what I learned from here is a lot about 
your childhood and yes. how you really got started. So you had your first realization about how design makes you feel when you were only five years old. Yeah, five or six years old. Um, it was my bedroom that my mom had decorated in all red. And I, you know, couldn't articulate that it gave me anxiety, but there was a something about like a red bedspread or red curtains, red rug, red pillows, red fire trucks. Like that was the theme, fire engine mm -hmm. red. Um, it just didn't make me pretty feel common for a five-year-old yeah, as a mother yeah, of a five-year-old yes. five five-year-old boy in, in Missouri, but I, I didn't, it wasn't Zen. It did not relax me. So I saved up all my little birthday checks, you know, $20 checks for my aunts and uncles and grandparents. And I went out and I talked my mom into letting me buy a new bedspread and new curtains and rug. And it was all in shades of blue. And so even as a child, I didn't understand the power of it, but subconsciously I understood, like, I didn't know why I was doing it, but I understood that changing my space made me feel better, changing the colors that surrounded me. For me, somebody who struggles with anxiety made me feel better. And so this book, I feel like, has kind of been a lifetime coming. As a teenager, you talk about this in your book, too, and you've been very open about this. You slept in your car. Yeah. Uh, and you spend a period of time where you didn't exactly have a home that you went home yeah. to every day. Yeah. How did that impact uh, your future and your, your life and career as a designer? You know, I think as a designer, it really impacted the way I feel about home. You know, I don't think of home as just like someplace that needs to be pretty. Home, first of all, is somewhere that makes me feel safe, you know, because for a while I, I didn't have that feeling of safety. And so there's a, a couple pages in the book. It's a, a workbook and it literally, it has little blanks for you to fill in. And one of them is the last time I felt safe was, or the last thing that made me feel safe was, or something that really cultivates a sense of safety, because I really want you to start thinking about the way your space makes you feel and not just the way it looks. It really struck me to that point. You, you talk about uh, how everyone's home should be their own mental wellness yes. retreat. And I love that phrase. What do you mean by that exactly? So your home should be something that really recharges you. You know, if you want to think of it as like your phone charger, you know, if you don't plug your phone in at night, if you get to plug it in or if that cord has a short in it, your phone doesn't make it through the day. Like it goes kaput. That's it's, stressful. Yeah, it's stressful. But it's the same for you. Your home really needs to be a place that fills up your cup, that really charges your battery. And the way to do that is not just by, you know, making it look like some magazine or making it look like the way I should tell you. That's the whole point of this book is democratizing design and helping you realize that it's not about what anybody else tells you. It's about the way your home makes you feel. And only you know those feelings. A theme in, he in this book, which, which might surprise people unless they've read it, is mental health. Yes. Happiness. Um, cluttering and the impact yes. of that. Why did you think talking about mental health and linking it to design was so important? You know, I think that mental health has been stigmatized, obviously, for mm -hmm. years. It's, you know, if you have a, a physical ailment, you, you go to a doctor, you get it fixed. But if it's a mental ailment, for some reason, that has been thought of as a weakness. So often it's just not talked about. And uh, there's this phrase, you know, it starts at home. It really does start at home. And when it, it starts at home with the way your home looks, the way your home feels, organization of the matter, you know, even mental health wise with, with sleeping, there's a whole chapter in there about prepping your room and your space and your home for better sleep if you're having problems with sleeping. So it was really important to me to help people think about the correlation between mental health and design. We're sitting here in Washington, D.C. We can literally see the Capitol where it's a city addicted to busy, yes. which many cities are. It's not yeah. the only one. And a lot of people will say, I don't have time for this. 
I'm I'm so stressed out. Yeah. I have so many things on my plate. So what's the argument for five minutes of decluttering or organizing each well, day? Or what's I, the right amount of time? I feel like in a city like this where you are always on the go and you're almost chastised for taking time for yourself, mm-hmm. I, I feel like those are the spots and the moments that are even more important to take those few moments to make sure that your home is a mental health sanctuary. Even if you are a member of Congress working on a political campaign, yes. Supreme Court justices, I, your mental you all have health, time. Not that everyone's mental health isn't important, as it isn't important, but especially people who have severely mentally taxing jobs like that, that really need to be able to focus on the problems at hand, they need to think about these things more than anyone, I would say. Bobby Burke, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. It was such a thoughtful conversation with Bobby Burke. I'm grateful for his time. His new book is Right at Home, How Good Design is Good for the Mind. And we'll be right back after a quick break. That does it for me today. I wish everyone a happy holiday season with friends and family. You can catch the show every Sunday at 12 p.m. and Monday at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For now, goodbye from Washington, and we'll see you next week. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.